The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. In the early morning hours of March 19, 2011, 22-year-old Sean O'Callaghan decided to walk back to her apartment after a night out at a club in Swindon, England, a town with a reputation for its safe streets. It's the reason Sean thought nothing of it, to make the short walk back to her apartment by herself that night, totally unaware. A predator was lurking in the shadows. Join me now as we take a look into the shocking disappearance of Sean O'Callaghan. You'll learn how a missing persons case evolved into a dramatic police investigation, resulting in a horrific confession. The aftermath of this case would see an officer's career shattered and a revelation that would never allow community to look at their streets the same way again. In January of 2011, 22-year-old Sean O'Callaghan and her boyfriend, 25-year-old Kevin Reap, decided to take their relationship to the next level by moving into their apartment together in the heart of Swindon, an English town just west of London, renowned for its vibrant nightlife, a place where clubs, historic pubs, dance halls, and cocktail bars spring to life as thousands of young partygoers descend on the area to have a good time. After dating for nearly two and a half years, Sean and Kevin decided they were ready to settle down and begin planning a life together. Sean was the oldest of four siblings and worked as a personal assistant, while Kevin was employed as a quantity surveyor. The couple's new apartment was cozy during the dreary English winter, and by March they'd taken to spending most of their weekends at home together. Several unpacked moving boxes still laid around their place, but they weren't in a hurry. As far as they were concerned, they had all the time in the world. Recently, the couple had started saving for a vacation to New York, so it was a rare indulgence when on Friday, March 18th, they agreed it was high time. The two of them were long overdue to have some fun with their friends. On her way to work that morning, Sean dropped Kevin off to spend the day with friends, attending a horse race in Cheltenham, while she made plans to hit the town with friends later that evening. Throughout the day, they kept in touch through text messages and looked forward to meeting up after. Before heading out for the night, Sean slipped into a gray dress, adding a bolero jacket to match her stylish brown new-look boots. After meeting her friends for dinner and having a few drinks at the Harvester restaurant, the girls bar hopped their way across town. Their final destination for the night was in Old Town Swindon, a Japanese-themed nightclub called Suju. At 1.24 a.m. that Saturday morning, Sean messaged Kevin, Where are you? It's unclear whether she expected to meet him there or she was hoping for a ride home. In either case, Kevin was already fast asleep back at their apartment. Just after texting Kevin, 
Sean became separated from her friends, and by 2.15 a.m., the friends had left the nightclub without her. Less than a mile away, a taxi driver reported to dispatch he was ending his shift and would be heading home in the next half hour. He also texted his wife that he loved her before turning off his cell phone, and at 2.13 a.m., he switched off the taxi's GPS tracking system. Still unable to find her friends in the crowded nightclub, Sean continued dancing and drinking until she decided to finally leave at 2.52 a.m. Although Sean was tipsy, she finally made her way out of the bar and onto the sidewalk, where she turned and started walking toward her home that was approximately 800 meters away. But after walking about 125 meters, she spotted a taxi cab parked along the street. Stirring from his sleep, Kevin was startled when he realized Sean still wasn't home. It was now almost 3.30 in the morning. Reading her previous text messages, Kevin began to feel concerned and started sending Sean messages asking where she was. And by 4.40 a.m., he still hadn't heard from her. For the next few hours, Kevin and Sean's family frantically tried to get in touch with her, along with any of her friends, but no one had any clue where she was. It was overwhelmingly out of character for Sean, which is why Kevin and Sean's family wasted no time in filing a missing persons case with Wiltshire Police. Despite the relatively short amount of time since Sean was last seen, police took the report seriously and immediately began trying to locate her. Officers scoured the route she would have walked to get back to her apartment, looking for any clues as to where she might be. Calls were also placed to local hospitals, while friends and family were interviewed. As the day wore on and there was still no sign of Sean, it was becoming less and less likely she was simply sleeping off a hangover somewhere and separated from her phone for some unknown reason. It was time to assign the case to a senior investigating officer. That evening, Detective Superintendent Steve Fulcher had been relaxing at home in front of the TV, disgusted by England's poor performance against Ireland in the Six Nations Rugby Championships. At 6.45 p.m., his phone rang with news of Sean's disappearance. As he was filled in on all the details, Fulcher began to suspect something was seriously wrong and immediately headed to the station. In the event of a possible kidnapping, the first 96 hours after the incident are paramount. When Fulcher reached headquarters that Saturday night, he was pleased to find his team already working their tails off. At least 25 detectives and uniformed officers were busy trying to find a person who had seemingly vanished from the face of the earth. The case was being treated as a crime in action, which required all officers to operate under the assumption Sean was alive. Fulcher quickly made the call to categorize it as a Class A inquiry, meaning he suspected there was a direct threat to her life. It was this mindset that would guide him through the investigation and form the bedrock for his decision-making. If he assumed Sean was dead, then she would be dead. There was no other cavalry coming to her rescue. It was up to Fulcher and his team. 
The preservation of Sean's life was the sole focus of his mission. Gathering evidence, recovering a potential ransom, and catching a perpetrator were all considered secondary and subordinate to the primary objective of preserving the life of the victim. And Fulcher never lost this focus, never allowing his team to forget it either. Sean's friends, family, and known contacts continued to be interviewed, while other officers were dispatched to perform a thorough search of her home, as well as rechecking the route she took. Fulcher instructed officers to be so thorough in their search that they banked their careers on it. In the meantime, another team began combing through CCTV footage from businesses in the area. By this point in the investigation, there'd only been one lead as to where Sean might be. While poring over her cell phone records, they discovered Sean's phone had been pinging cell towers near downtown Swindon throughout the evening, as would be expected. But suddenly, at 3.24 a.m., her cell mysteriously pinged a tower 14 miles away. By this time, detectives had also obtained security footage showing Sean leaving the Suju nightclub at 2.52 a.m. and knew the mysterious cell ping occurred after she left. Detectives often use cell tower data to narrow down a defined search area by triangulating several different towers. Sometimes a person can even be pinpointed down to the meter. But the tower Sean's phone pinged was in a remote area known as the Savernac Forest without any nearby towers to triangulate. When Fulcher was informed about the size of the potential search area, his heart sank. Sean could have been anywhere within a 141 square mile area when her phone received that text message from Kevin. Working tirelessly into the night, Fulcher began creating a plan of action while detectives and officers continued working around the clock searching for Sean. By morning, police headquarters had been transformed into a high-tech command center and 25 more officers were assigned to work the case, all working toward one goal, find Sean. By 9 a.m. Sunday, March 20th, Hundreds of locals were already searching the area of Savernac Forest after hearing of Sean's disappearance on the news. Normally, police attempt to keep the public as far away from a crime scene as possible, but a missing persons case is a literal race against time. Sean could be injured somewhere and clinging to life. There was also the possibility she was being held hostage. Regardless of the exact circumstances of any given number of possible scenarios, if Sean was presumed to be alive, then every second mattered. As the long day wore on and the team chased every possible lead, everyone continued to work non-stop, hoping for even the smallest break in the case. Sean had now been missing for 48 hours. On Monday, March 21st at 6.30 a.m., Fulcher arrived back at the HQ and saw a throng of media personnel gathered outside. By now, nearly everyone in the area had heard about Sean's disappearance and had seen her missing posters blanketing the town. There were now 60 officers assigned to the case, but the number of local volunteers searching for Sean in Savernac Forest grew to nearly 10,000. An overwhelming response from the local community Wiltshire police had never witnessed before. 
As the day progressed, more officers from nearby towns were assigned to the case, bringing the total number of officers dedicated solely to finding Sean to 140. At 3 p.m., Sean's family made an appeal to news cameras. Kevin Reap volunteered to read the family's statement. I just want to say how very worried we are about Sean. She's been missing now for over two days, and it's not like her not to come home or, or contact any of us for such a long time. We all want to know where Sean is, and we want her home safe and well. Sean is a bubbly, lively person who is instantly liked by everyone she meets. She's very close to her family and has lots of friends. If Sean is listening and doesn't want to contact us, I beg her to at least ring the police. We all just want to know she's okay, as it's breaking our hearts not to know where she is. Suddenly an urgent message came for Fulcher, requesting him to join the team assigned to the CCTV footage. As they gathered around a small TV, a grainy black and white surveillance video flickered onto the screen. The security camera's timestamp read 2.56 a.m. It was from another pub just down the street, and they watched as Sean came into view, zigzagging slightly as she walked away from the camera toward the edge of the screen. Just before she walked off camera, a pair of headlights illuminated the screen. Because the lights were pointing directly toward the camera, blinding light washed out the top right-hand corner of the screen. Detectives watched breathlessly as Sean's boots disappeared into the white light. Exactly 64 seconds after Sean vanished into the headlights, the car pulled away from the curb and drove past the camera, and there was no longer any sign of Sean on the sidewalk. Despite about a dozen officers analyzing the video, the poor quality made it almost impossible to glean any information about the vehicle, the driver, or if Sean was even inside. Immediately, the footage was sent off for expert analysis to determine the exact make and model of the car. Inside headquarters, the excitement was palpable as officers tackled their missions with renewed vigor, some of them even working all through the night. By the next morning, Tuesday, March 22nd, enough CCTV footage had been examined to conclude Sean hadn't walked past the mysterious headlights. She had 100% entered the vehicle. By early afternoon, the video lab confirmed the vehicle was a green Toyota Avensis estate. Within minutes of the car's make and model being confirmed, Fulcher heard footsteps racing towards his office. Officer Marcus Beresford Smith flung the door open while trying to catch his breath. Boss, you've got to see this. Marcus had been assigned to the CCTV team and had been poring over footage when he was struck with a brilliant idea. He wondered if any patrol cars operating in an old town on the night of the disappearance were equipped with automatic number plate recognition cameras, ANPR for short. Maybe, just maybe, a camera had caught a glimpse of the Toyota Avensis they were looking for. And there was. A patrol car fitted with ANPR happened to be in the area that night and by an extraordinary stroke of luck had driven past a Toyota Vensis at the time of Sean's disappearance. It was the break they'd been waiting for 
and now they had the number plate. The number plate meant they'd also soon have the driver's identity. Christopher Hollowell, a local 47-year-old taxi driver. But Christopher didn't seem to fit the profile of a kidnapper. He was happily married with children, and his neighbors all spoke very highly of him, even calling him a smashing bloke. Although Christopher had served some time in his younger days for burglary, he'd maintained a spotless record for the past 25 years. Despite his profile, Fulcher made the call to abandon all other lines of inquiry and focus the entirety of his resources on Christopher. But he wouldn't be arresting him, nor would he be formally named as a suspect. If Christopher had indeed abducted Sean, and if she was still alive, then Christopher was the only person on earth who knew where she was. Their only hope of finding her alive would be if he led them to her. Immediately, they began covert surveillance on him. Within minutes, one team was assigned to watch Christopher's house, while another was tasked with following his taxi. They were implementing an old-school police tactic known as Pivot Peripheral Surveillance. Twelve separate vehicles tailed Christopher as he drove around town, frequently swapping the tailing vehicle while others drove parallel routes around him. The idea was not to alert Christopher he was being followed. If their cover was blown, they risked him never taking them to Sean. As police watched Christopher, he taped two of Sean's missing person posters to the back windscreen of his taxi. Soon after, they witnessed him cleaning out his vehicle and using chemicals to scrub the rear passenger area of the car. Because he was likely destroying valuable evidence, detectives alerted Fulcher and asked if they should arrest him. But evidence was not their priority. Sean was, and they were ordered to continue surveillance. As Christopher cruised around town, he made stops along the way, tossing items into garbage bins. When detectives investigated the drops, they discovered a woman's perfume bottle and a set of seat covers. Throughout the night, Christopher picked up fares and worked until after midnight. Then he drove out to the countryside, where conducting surveillance at night without being seen was nearly impossible. Sure enough, a little after 1 a.m., the team completely lost sight of Christopher. When they finally found him again, it was 2.08 a.m., He'd pulled over along a country road and set an object on fire before continuing on. By the time detectives reached the fire, whatever Christopher had set ablaze was already charred beyond recognition. Time was running out for Sean, and no one was more aware of that than DSI Fulcher. As he walked into police headquarters early Wednesday morning on March 23rd, the detective unveiled a truly bold and radical strategy He'd used the news media to put pressure on Christopher to return Sean, wherever she was. The plan was to issue a series of statements indicating they were extremely close to finding Sean. Convinced Christopher was following the updates closely, they'd hoped he'd be spooked enough to return to Sean's location, possibly to relocate her. The statements indicated the search area for Sean had been significantly narrowed, and the public was formally requested to stand down in their search of the Savernac Forest in order to let professional search teams take over. It was also reported that the search would be halted after sundown 
and resumed the following morning. Fulcher wanted to give Christopher a chance to return to Savernac Forest without 10,000 volunteers combing through the area. Disappointingly, Christopher never deviated from his normal routine. On Thursday morning, March 24th, Fulcher made his most specific report to the media, one he hoped would finally crack Christopher. He publicly stated that police were on the lookout for a green Toyota Avensis. If Chris was listening, he would have to do something. Within minutes, the surveillance team spotted Chris making purchases at a pharmacy. After promptly retrieving the receipt, they were alarmed to see he had purchased enough sleeping pills and acetaminophen to easily overdose on. The possibility Christopher was planning on ending his own life was too great. They needed to arrest him immediately before all hope was lost. In England, police are governed by the Police and Criminal Evidence Act, also known as PACE. When a suspect is arrested, they're immediately cautioned and informed of their right to remain silent and also to a solicitor. But also, according to PACE guidelines, suspects can only be interviewed at a police station or formal detention facility. However, there's one exception to the guidelines. An urgent interview may be conducted on the spot by authorities, if not doing so puts other lives in jeopardy. It's predominantly used in cases of terrorism, but it was under this exception, Fulcher instructed two of his detectives to perform an immediate interview with Christopher Hollowell. When they asked Christopher about Sean's whereabouts, he only gave a two-word answer, no comment. As detectives began transporting Christopher back to the station, Steve Fulcher made what was perhaps the single most consequential decision of his life. He decided to personally conduct a second urgent interview with Christopher, something that had never been done before. It was his belief that if Christopher made it back to the station and had a solicitor by his side, he'd never talk. Either Fulcher talked to Christopher right then and there, or Sean would die. DSI Fulcher convinced himself in that moment that Sean's right to life under Article 2 of the Human Rights Act trumped Christopher's rights as a suspect under the PACE guidelines. After leaving the station, Fulcher headed to meet Christopher, who was being detained by other officers at a remote lookout near Barbary Castle. After introducing himself, Fulcher asked Christopher to step out of the vehicle and join him for a chat. As they walked a short distance, Fulcher asked Christopher if he was going to reveal where Sean was. However, Christopher insisted he didn't know anything. After repeating the question a second time, Fulcher pleaded with him to do the right thing, but Christopher simply responded that he wanted to go to the station. As the two continued back and forth for a while, Fulcher was preparing to give up, but he decided to ask Christopher one last time, tell me where Sean is. He never expected what would happen next. Christopher looked directly at him and said, have you got a car? We'll go. As Christopher and Fulcher sat in the back seat of a detective's car, Christopher gave directions to the driver taking them out into the countryside near the town of Uffington. It was only later Fulcher would realize 
This was the exact location where the surveillance team had lost track of Christopher a few nights earlier. Along a remote single-track road, Christopher told Fulcher they'd find Sean's body at the bottom of a steep embankment. He also confessed to murdering Sean on Saturday morning, shortly after getting into his cab. He said he stabbed her in the back of the head with a knife. The search for Sean was finally over. As the car carrying Christopher was about to head back to the station, Christopher asked Fulcher for a cigarette. As he took a drag, he exhaled and said, You and I should have a chat. The two men then sat down, and Christopher admitted to being sick in the head, and asked Fulcher if it was too late for him to get help. He then asked Fulcher another question. Do you want another one? What he was offering was another victim. Fulcher was shocked. He knew the safest course of action would be to caution Christopher under the PACE guidelines and take him back to the station. But he also knew that if he did, they'd likely never discover who the other victim he was referring to was. Totally unprompted, the killer was now confessing to a second murder police weren't even aware of. Although Christopher couldn't remember the exact year of the murder, either 2003, 4 or 5, he could take them to the exact spot she was buried. After driving for nearly 40 minutes, Christopher asked the car to stop beside a large field. He then got out and climbed over a dry stone fence. Next, he began pacing off steps from a distinctive dip in the wall and found the spot he was looking for. Whoever he confessed to murdering was buried directly beneath his feet. But who was she? Even Christopher didn't know. On April 4, 2011, in a quiet home located in one of Swindon's better neighborhoods, Karen Edwards wrapped two presents for her daughter Becky. It was her 29th birthday. She carried the gifts up to Becky's room, placing them neatly beside the others. In Becky's wardrobe were columns of neatly stacked wrapped presents, eight years' worth of Christmas and birthday presents that were waiting for her to unwrap when she finally decided to come home again. Karen wanted her daughter to know that just because she'd been gone, she hadn't been forgotten. In 2002, Becky Godden Edwards was 20 years old, battling a severe years-long heroin addiction. It hadn't been uncommon for her to disappear for weeks or months at a time, but she always knew the door was open for her if she came back home. Despite years of heartbreaking incidents, attempts at rehab, and even a stint in jail, Becky and her mother remained very close. It was as hard for Karen to watch her daughter destroy herself as it was for Becky to witness her mother's anguish. On December 16, 2002, Becky kissed her mother goodbye told her she loved her, and promised to come back when she was clean. She had decided she couldn't keep putting her mother through all the pain. It was the last time Karen would ever see her daughter. In early January 2003, Becky was working the red light district of Swindon when a taxi driver who had recently become obsessed with her had lured her into his cab. The driver was Christopher Hollowell. After Becky was inside, 
He drove off to a secluded spot where they wouldn't be interrupted, but instead of driving Becky back to where he picked her up, Christopher choked her with his hands until she stopped breathing. He then left her body hidden in some bushes before returning the following evening to bury her in the field he later showed Steve Fulcher. During the search for Sean, Becky's mother Karen was glued to the TV watching the news reports. Her heart was breaking for another mother and family who didn't know where their daughter was. When Sean's body was found and police reported they were now investigating the identity of another victim, Karen called police to express her fears that the unknown victim might be her daughter. Attempting to put her fears at ease, the operator told Karen that 464 other people had made the exact same phone call. By the end of the night, that number had grown to well over 600. Ten days later, on what would have been Becky's 29th birthday, DSI Steve Fulcher knocked on Karen's door. Immediately, she recognized him from the news. Her worst fears had come true. It was Becky they'd found. What I can tell you is that a 47-year-old man uh, from Swindon is in custody, having been arrested for kidnap and two murders. The location of two bodies have been identified to me by this individual, uh, one of whom has yet to be identified formally, but I'm quite clear, is Sean. I've informed Sean, Sean's um, family, who are obviously deeply distressed, and I'd ask you please to give them some time and space to come to terms with what's happened. I've got to say that the public and the media have been a fantastic help in the desperate effort to, to find Sean over the last few days. And of course, this has been a fast-paced uh, inquiry. Having found these bodies, you'll appreciate that I'm under um, extreme pressure to undertake certain um, actions and procedures. And what I'd really ask you to do is to give me some time to enable me to recover these bodies with the dignity and respect that they deserve. I'll be able to give you more detail over the next hours that occur, um, but clearly uh, you're receiving information uh, very early on um, in the inquiry in terms of, uh, of my having um, got to this point. And um, I'm also concerned, of course, for uh, the family and the effect this has on the family. I, I want to recover um, these, these people and give them the dignity they, they deserve. I can assure you that I'll be available for further information um, in due course. If you could bear with me, please. Now that Christopher Hollowell was in police custody with access to a solicitor, he flatly refused to answer any questions or sign off on the confession he'd made earlier to Fulcher. It was now more apparent than ever that if Fulcher hadn't made the decision to push the PACE guidelines to their breaking point, they would have never found Sean, and they also would have never known about Becky. Steve Fulcher knew there was no other course of action that would have produced the same results. However, the courts wouldn't see it that way. At a pretrial hearing for Christopher in 2012, a judge ruled the confession given to Fulcher, along with the fact that he led detectives to the bodies, was inadmissible under the PACE guidelines. When the court determined Fulcher had potentially violated the law by eliciting the confession, it was the beginning of the end of his career. 
after receiving near-universal praise and commendation for his actions during the investigation from his peers. Suddenly, the courts and higher police administration had turned against him. Despite being fully supported by Becky's mother, Karen Edwards, and Sean's family, the O'Callaghan's, DSI Fulcher was demoted, suspended, and found guilty of gross misconduct by an independent commission. Ultimately, Steve Fulcher resigned from the force in 2014. Fortunately, in the case of Sean, forensic analysis were able to match her DNA to the seat covers Christopher had attempted to dispose of, but that only proved she'd been in his cab. Investigators were also able to match Christopher's DNA to a bite mark left on Sean's body. If her body hadn't been recovered, Christopher would have certainly walked free. In the case of Becky, without Christopher's confession, any evidence linking Hollowell to Becky would have only been circumstantial, and unfortunately her case was dropped from the indictment entirely, leaving Karen and her family utterly dismayed. In October 2012, Christopher Hollowell pled guilty to the murder of Sean O'Callaghan and received a minimum sentence of 25 years in prison. After his sentencing, Sean's mother addressed the media. The devastating loss of Sean in such a brutal way is something that myself, my family, Kevin, and everyone who knew Sean are learning to live with. Our lives have been changed forever as a result of a truly wonderful life being taken too soon. The overwhelming response and support continues to be of comfort to us and is great testament to Sean. She will continue to inspire and never be forgotten. As her mum, I want her to be remembered as the incredible person that she was. I would like to pay tribute to Sean's brothers and sister for their immense strength, conduct, composure, dignity and support throughout this immensely distressing time. Christopher Halliwell has, by his heinous actions, taken my vibrant daughter, young daughter's life and caused unimaginable distress. The sentence served today on Halliwell will not bring Sean back, but will mean he can't take any more. We will all endeavour to go on with our lives as Sean would have wanted. Our memories, along with their warmth and happy nature, will always be in our thoughts and hearts. That cannot be taken away from us or anyone who knew her. And we miss her. Karen Edwards wasn't willing to give up the fight in bringing Christopher to justice for the murder of her daughter. And over the next four years, tirelessly and heroically championed her daughter's case. Wiltshire police asked Karen at one point if she'd be satisfied knowing Becky's killer was already serving a sentence for Sean's murder, to which they received a quick and empathetic no. Karen even gathered 42,000 signatures to formally petition the government to review the PACE guidelines. Because of her unending insistence and pressure, police continued to slowly gather information regarding Becky's case including witnesses who reported seeing Becky entering Christopher's taxi in early January of 2003. Soil samples later found on a shovel in Christopher's garage 
also matched the field where Becky had been buried. On January 3, 2003, at 5.25 a.m., Christopher called roadside assistance because his car had run out of gas just miles from the same field. But most startling of all was that Christopher had made a trip to his doctor that same day to treat a broken finger and several deep scratches on his face. Many of the tips regarding Becky's case were gathered by Karen herself, face to face, while gathering signatures for the PACE review petition. Finally, in 2016, prosecutors determined there was enough evidence to charge Christopher with Becky's murder and take him to trial. But this time, the judge decided to admit Christopher's confession to Fulcher as evidence. It only took three hours for the jury to deliberate, returning with a verdict of guilty. Five and a half years after Christopher took Steve Fulcher to the field where he'd buried Becky, she and her mother were finally getting their justice. The court sentenced Christopher Hollowell to a whole life sentence, meaning he'll spend the rest of his natural life behind bars. In England, such a severe sentence is a rarity. At the time, there were only 53 other prisoners serving whole life sentences. During Christopher's confession to Fulcher, as they drove to the field where Becky had been buried, Fulcher asked him if there were any others, to which Christopher gave a haunting response. Isn't that enough? An ex-cellmate of Christopher's during the 80s reported to police Christopher had once asked him how many people he needed to kill in order to become a serial killer. Christopher was also recorded on a phone call after being arrested in 2011 telling a friend the police were investigating him for killing eight people. Fulcher and others began to suspect they had a serial killer on their hands, but didn't have much to go on. In 2014, detectives made an incredible discovery. They found Sean's boots at the bottom of a pond near the town of Ramsbury. But that wasn't all they found. Buried around the perimeter, Police also discovered 60 more items of women's clothing, including a cardigan believed to have belonged to Becky. Fulcher believes the items were Christopher's trophy store from his victims. Although there's no direct evidence linking Christopher to any other murders or missing person cases, there's a trove of circumstantial evidence. For instance, March 19th, the day he murdered Sean, was also the day Christopher's girlfriend had dumped him while he was in prison in 1986. On March 19, 2002, a woman who had been having an affair with Christopher named Linda Russell also disappeared, although her husband Glenn is currently serving a life sentence for a murder. He's always maintained his innocence. On March 19, 2009, Claudia Lawrence disappeared from the city of York and Christopher matched witness descriptions perfectly. Although her disappearance occurred a long way from Swindon, Christopher's father lived just a few streets away from Claudia, and there were many, many more, including Sally Ann John, a sex worker in Swindon, who disappeared in 1995 after Christopher was reported to have become obsessed with her. A remarkably similar description to witnesses' accounts of his behavior toward Becky, Christopher and Sally lived on the same street. 
It's been 10 years since the night Christopher brutally murdered Sean O'Callaghan, and police are no longer pursuing any new leads. Christopher remains silent in prison, keeping his dark secrets to himself, leaving us to wonder how many more victims are out there. There were 60 items of clothing found at the pond in Ramsbury, bidding the question, whose daughter is never coming home? In the aftermath of Sean's case, PACE guidelines have been called into question by Steve Fulcher, Karen Edwards, and many others. They argue current guidelines don't go far enough to protect victims. Instead, they even go out of their way to protect a suspect's rights at the immediate expense of the victim. But despite increasing pressure from the public, a specific review of PACE hasn't happened. This makes it all the more unlikely a detective would risk his career to save a victim. In the words of Steve Fulcher, if your daughter went missing tomorrow, I would not be confident that the police would do the right thing in preserving your daughter's life. Being a police officer is about keeping the peace he added, preventing and detecting crime, and protecting life and property. I think we've lost sight of that. And now I would like to introduce you to the podcast, It's Frightful. Hey, I'm Sammy. Ready for something frightful? Come join me and guest narrators as we read real stories from the paranormal. Suddenly their bedroom door handle started being violently janked up and down like someone was having a go at it and then everything just stopped. To creepy encounters with people who have nefarious intentions. And it was the same two people. It turns out those two had connections to a human trafficking ring. Subscribe to the It's Frightful podcast in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Until next time, it's not like we needed to sleep tonight anyways. Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter, using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorecords.com.au slash G E